end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And in that gap of time, that's when the events took place that are recorded in the book of Esther. And so you see that depicted on the chart. And then, of course, if you continue to the right, then there's the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> it's, uh, below that, you will see the uh, three returns. The first one headed up by Zerubbabel, the second one by Ezra, and the third by Nehemiah. It's interesting to me that, uh, you know, with God, there are no coincidences. We're going to see his hand in all of these things that we're studying about. But there were three deportations that we know about. And interesting enough, there were three returns that are recorded in the Bible. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and some possible ramifications of that just a little bit later. So below that, you'll see the prophets that prophesied during this time frame, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then down at the bottom, you see listed the uh, Persian kings that ruled during this time frame, starting with, with Cyrus. So that is the kind of a big overview, and if, as you study, you can kind of make references back to this chart and kind of get your mind synced up with the, with the time frames. All righty. Last week, <clears throat> in our introduction, we ended talking about uh, Zedekiah. We looked at 2 Kings chapter 25, the last king in Judah, the last descendant of David. And uh, we saw that uh, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, that Zedekiah was taken prisoner, taken up to Riblah to face Nebuchadnezzar where his sons were slaughtered before his eyes. And uh, then he was blinded and taken off into Babylonian captivity. So that appeared to be uh, the end of Zedekiah. And to the casual reader, you might think, well, if that's the end of the line of the descendants of David, then, then how is God going to keep his promise to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed? How is he going to keep his promise to David that one, his seed would sit on the throne of Israel forever? The last descendant is gone. So that's the way we ended last week. Now we we fast forward about 50 years from that day, and we're in Ezra Chapter 1 and verse 1. So let's read a little bit in this chapter. Now in the first year of, uh, of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdoms and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering to the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Cyrus issues this decree 
It says, in the first year of Cyrus, he issued that decree. Now, there's a lot of uh, discussion about exactly when that was. And I've read a lot trying to figure it all out. And it's hard to get down to exact years sometimes when something happened 2,500 years ago. But it appears what happened was that Babylon, that if you're reading in Daniel chapter 5 when Belshazzar, you remember that having the drunken party and uh, he saw the handwriting on the wall and Daniel came and interpreted what was going on, the writing there. And he says, you've been weighed in the balance and been wanting. And it was that night that the Persians defeated and destroyed the, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, Babylon, and the king was, was killed. But if you read uh, immediately after that in Daniel chapter 5, at the end of that chapter you'll see that uh, it says, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So it didn't mention Cyrus, it said Darius the Mede. Well, there's a lot of controversy about just exactly who that was. <laughs> it's hard to find him in history. But the best explanation I've been able to find is that there was a general that, that uh, commanded Cyrus's army in the defeat of Babylon. And it was this general that he is Darius the Mede that he uh, put in charge of Babylon. Because at, at this point in time now, Babylon would just be a province in the Persian Empire. It's like Tennessee is a state in the United States. So now Babylon was not a country of itself, but it was a province. And this Darius the Mede was king over this, or ruler over this, this province, and apparently ruled for a couple of years, and then he died, and then Cyrus took that over himself. So uh, later in uh, Ezra 5 and verse 13, Cyrus is called the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon. And apparently that was when he had taken over the, the Babylonian province after Darius the Mede had died. And so when it talks about in the first year of Cyrus, we're talking about that first year, not the year that Babylon fell, 539, okay? It was about 536 or a couple of years later, but that can slide one way or the other, depending on who you're consulting trying to get those dates. So that's a little bit of history there. So uh, Cyrus issued this decree then that all of the uh, exiles, the Jewish exiles, could return to Jerusalem. And he, and he said it for a specific purpose there uh, in verse 2, to build the house, uh, to build God a house in Jerusalem. And again in verse 3, let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. And we'll see in verse 5 where it says that God stirred up the uh, spirit of some of those leaders that said, uh, for the purpose of going and rebuilding the Lord's house. So that's what Ezra talks about a great deal. He, he really doesn't mention, maybe in chapter 4 we'll see a little bit about building the walls of Jerusalem, but the primary concern was to get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so not only did uh, Cyrus say, okay, you can, you can go, but you just think about that if you left your place in Babylon, go all those hundreds of miles back to Jerusalem if you went back empty-handed. And what are you going to find when you get back there? The city is destroyed. 
uh, it had to be a pretty big mess that they were getting back into. So it would, they would need a lot of provisions to help them. And so that's what Cyrus did. He, he encouraged, and, and I suppose in those days they didn't have uh, the Bill of Rights and Constitutions and Civil Rights and things. And if, if the king encourages you to do something, then it's more like a command. You, I guess you better do it. And so he encouraged people. And look, he said to give them silver and gold with goods and cattle. So that would be things that would help them to get started living back in their new home, right? And then this free will offering for the house of God. So also they could just offer uh, money that would be used to help rebuild the uh, the temple when they return. And so he sent them back home really in pretty good shape. It was somewhat like when uh, they left Egypt. You remember that? The Egyptians had given them quite a bit of gold and things and earrings and so forth at that time. So, so now they're able to uh, return, a remnant would able to return back home to Jerusalem. But you know, that shouldn't have been a surprise to any of them, should it? I really appreciated Brother Delk and, and Matt and Brian here leading us through a study of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to look at a couple of verses that you will recall they led us through back several months ago uh, regarding these things. Uh, I say it, it shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, you know, Daniel, if you recall, Daniel was in the first deportation in 606. So he had been in Babylon at this point in time 70 years by the time you get down to Ezra chapter 1. And um, you remember, and I believe it was uh, Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah actually wrote a letter and sent it to Babylon to those exiles that were already there. You remember that? And one of the things he told them was about the 70 years. And so I just said that to say this. We'll see that Daniel knew about the 70 years. And if Daniel knew, there had to be some other people that knew as well. And, and Daniel was a very smart man. He could count and he could add and subtract. And he could figure out something about this 70 years. And so I just say that because there had to be some anticipation on their part that this thing uh, was about to happen. And, of course, we have all of these prophecies. Let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. God said, it is I, speaking through Isaiah, says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Uh, he will report, perform my desire, and uh, Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. In the next chapter, verse 13, he said that Cyrus is going to do this without payment. And so that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Ezra. Not only did these exiles not have to buy Cyrus off to get the opportunity to go back, but he actually had people give them goods to help them get back. So we see the truthfulness then of those two prophecies. Cyrus issued the decree, and he didn't take any payment for it. Jeremiah chapter 25, this is written in 606 B.C., uh, I'm, it, which was, uh, what, 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he said, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So there's another time that Jeremiah tells exactly how long this 
exile is going to be. Jeremiah 29, and this is the letter we, we talked about. This is 594 B.C., eight, eight years before the fall of Jerusalem, written to the exiles. And look what he says. When seven years have been complete, completed for Babylon, I will visit you and, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For the, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for uh, welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And we're going to see that very thing happen in the book of Ezra. You will seek me and find me, and when you search me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, from the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where, from where I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29, verse 16. You remember, he talked also about those who were not yet in. This was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, about eight years before that, and those that were not already in exile. And he said it's going to be a bad situation for them. There's going to be pestilence, uh, famine, and, of course, many would die by the sword. So those people that remained in Jerusalem at that time, the news wasn't, wasn't so good. And, of course, we know in the destruction of Jerusalem, that's just exactly what happened. They were uh, besieged the city for about a year and a half, 18 months. And by that time, people were starving. There was cannibalization. Uh, it, it was just awful, awful mess there that happened just like God said that it would, that it would be. So look down now in verse 5 of Ezra chapter 1. Then the heads of the father's household of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God has stirred up to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Studying these things and, and really in light of... Uh, things that we talked about last week, about exactly why God recorded these things. What's that got to do with us here 2,500 years later? Uh, how is that something that can help me? How is it going to help me get to heaven? Reading about Cyrus in 70 years and people returning from captivity. So what's, you know, what's the meaning of all that? Well, let's just consider. Look, turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter ten. Let's just see. Let's just see how that works. Hebrews, of course, the letter was written to Jewish Christians. Hebrew being a different name for Jews. And as you can imagine, living in uh, Jewish neighborhoods, those that were Christians were suffering because those that didn't turn to Christ and held on to the old law thought they were blasphemers, and they persecuted them. They would uh, put them in prison. They would confiscate their homes and their possessions and even kill them. And so Jewish Christians were suffering. And so the, the Hebrew writer wrote this entire book. The purpose of it was to encourage these Hebrew Christians to hold fast their confession. Don't turn loose. And I'm going to give you a good reason, he said, to do that. 
I'm not just leaving you empty here. I'm going to tell you why it's to your benefit to hold fast to confession of Jesus Christ. Down in verse 34, he talked about some of the persecutions they were suffering, their property seized, being put in prison. But he goes on to say, uh, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one, they can take your physical possessions from you, but they can't take your reward from you. you got a possession that's going to last forever. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You're going to have to hold on. You're going to have to endure. You're going to have to put up with this persecution. But it's worth it. Because God has promised you an abiding possession. If you hold your place there and turn over to the next, next page in my Bible, he talks about um, this heavenly home. That, that those that seek a country of their own. He says, but that is his. This is uh, verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And that is the inheritance. That is the possession that he's talking about back over in verse 34 of chapter 10. So the encouragement then is to hold fast because you've got something much better in store for you. But the question is, can you believe that? Is that really true? Back in chapter 10 and verse 23, he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he is faithful who promised. So the Hebrew writer is saying, you can count on it. When God promised you this eternal possession, you can believe it. Well, why would he expect them to believe it? When he, That's easy to say. You know, it's easy to say. I could say you can trust Danny Hutton, <laughs> and I believe you can. <laughs> but if you trust him, you'd kind of look for some evidence to prove that, wouldn't you? Well, guess what? You go back to Ezra chapter 1. You're going to get some proof, aren't you? God had already said before that it was going to be Cyrus that was going to let them return. Guess what? Cyrus let them return. He said it was going to be 70 years. Guess what? It was 70 years. And we're going to see in a minute. He said all these utensils that they took out of the temple, guess what? They're going to be returned. They were returned. So the point is that God knows faith requires evidence, and he's, he's provided a mountain of evidence for us. There's abundant evidence for us to look at that Hebrews 10, 23, when he says God is faithful, and we can look at the evidence, and we can believe it with all of our heart. And we can say like the Apostle Paul did, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We can believe it when God says, I've got inheritance for you in heaven. And we can count on it. And you know what that does? That helps us. You remember we talked about the things that the scriptures will do for us. It will encourage us. Isn't that encouraging to know that God always keeps his promises? You know, that's uh, what Hebrews, or Romans 15 verse 4, encouragement of the scriptures. There's instruction and uh all of these things to help us then to, to hold fast our, our confessions. The perseverance helps us to persevere in difficult times. So those are some of the reasons. There were other reasons that these events happened in Ezra chapter 1. It contributed 
to the events that would lay the groundwork for the time that Jesus would come to this earth and shed his blood. This is all a part of that as well. But it helps us in ways that God intends. So we look into these, these events that happened long ago, and we can be encouraged by it, we can be built up by it, we can be instructed by it, and we can persevere because of the encouragement of the scriptures. And so, it says, um, God stirred up the spirit of these people to go return to Jerusalem and to rebuild uh, the Lord's house. Uh, verse 7, uh, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. It was in Jeremiah 27. That's where he said all these things are going to be returned to the temple, Jeremiah 27. So he brought out all of these articles of the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken away from Jerusalem and put them and had put them in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Meredith, the treasure, and he took them out uh, to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Who is that fellow? He was somebody that uh, apparently Cyrus had some confidence in. We'll talk about him a more just a little bit later. Verse 11, all the articles of gold, silver, numbered 5,400. This uh, Bazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So he entrusted these treasures of the, from the house of God that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out, and he gave them the, the Bazar and to take back and put back in the temple once it was rebuilt. Talk more about that fellow in just a moment. Chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his city. So there was more than one city in Judah, of course, and a lot of these captives were from various cities. And so when they returned, they returned to whatever city their, their ancestral home place. Not all of them went back to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, all the way through about verse 60, is a big long list of names of people or heads of households of, of people that returned uh, to Jerusalem from captivity or to Judah from captivity. I'm not going to attempt to read all those uh, Jewish names. I'd let Brother Delk come up and read them, but it would take too long. Uh, wouldn't be very informative. It might be entertaining, but it wouldn't be informative. But I do want to look at a couple. Look in verse 2. It says, These came up with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. This Jeshua, as we learn from uh, Haggai chapter 1, was the high priest. And of course, you would need the high priest if you're returning and you're going to build the temple and you're going to obey the law as given in the law of Moses. You would need the high priest. So the Jeshua was one of the returners. This other one was uh, a man named Zerubbabel. So what do you know about this fellow? Let's take a look at this list, little chart. What it appears that this Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel appear to have been the same person, although not everybody agrees with that. But you can look at this, this chart, and you can see some things that would kind of suggest that. Uh, they were both in Haggai 1 and 1 in chapter 2 and verse 2, said Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. Ezra 5 and verse 14 says that Sheshbazar was the governor of Judah. They both uh, 
came to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. Ezra, right here in 2 and verses 1 and 2. Ezra verse, chapter 1, verse 11 says, Sheshbazar was one of them that returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. They all had, both had a part in organizing the rebuilding of the temple. They both began uh, helping uh, lay the foundation for the temple. It talks about Zerubbabel in Ezra 5 and verse 2 had a part in laying the foundation of the temple. Ezra 5 and verse 16 tells us this Sheshbazar did the same thing. So appearances are that this was the same person. Of course, it would make sense that Sheshbazar was called a, a prince of Judah, which we will see will apply. But just what do these guys mean to us? Well, they're going to answer the question that we left with uh, last week. Let's go back in time to 2 Kings chapter 24, and we're about 597 B.C., and a man named Jehoiachin had been king for about three months, and along came Nebuchadnezzar and laid siege to the city, and Jehoiachin and his family surrendered, and they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And it would seem that that may have been the end of him. But look what Jeremiah said about him in Jeremiah 52, beginning verse 31. It says, Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And then he spoke to him kindly and set him on his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And so we see that Jehoiachin didn't uh, wasn't die off there uh, without any. We're going to see that he, he had some descendants too. It would seem that when he was captured that that, that was all over, but we see that that wasn't the case. So now turn to Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 1 begins with the genealogy of Jesus going from Abraham all the way down through time to the birth of Jesus. So it starts off there in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac father of Jacob, and so on. And we're going to skip down through the genealogies here and just hit a few of these verses. So we're getting down to the time of David now, descendant of Abraham. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Skip forward again down to verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah. This Jeconiah is Jehoiachin. He's really called by three different names in the scriptures. He's called Jehoiachin, he's called Jeconiah, and he's called Kaniah. Three different places. So this is the Jehoiachin we're talking about here that we just read about in Jeremiah chapter 52 and in 2 Kings chapter 24. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. There's our Zerubbabel right there. And of course, you can continue through the, the lineage there. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, how did God keep his promise to Abraham? Well, it was through this fellow named Zerubbabel. How did he keep his promise to David? 
King David, it was through this fellow named Zerubbabel. And of course, that had a, his promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. That's a spiritual Israel that he's talking about. Jesus reigns today, who was a descendant down through Zerubbabel. So it was through him that God kept those, those promises. The promise that seemed to be in dire jeopardy there for a while, wasn't it? But of course, what we know is that God always keeps his promises. And so it was never in doubt, even when it got down to one man and it seemed like just hanging by a thread. There was no doubt that God was going to keep his promises. Continue looking through chapter 2. Probably not going to get through with all these tonight. That uh, verse 36 talks about the returning priests. There were 4,289 of those. There were just a few of the Levites. And uh, we get down to verse 61, and there were several there that claimed to be of the proper lineage to be priests. You remember the priests not only had to be Levites, but descendants of Aaron, who was a Levite. So you could be a Levite and not be a priest, but if you were a priest, you had to be a Levite <laughs> and a descendant of Aaron. And so it, it says that they couldn't... Uh, they, they searched among the ancestral registration and, and they couldn't be located. So that, that was kind of an amazing statement to me because here, here these people have been in exile 70 years and they still had the ancestral registration. You think God had a, a, a part in that? I believe, just personally, just thinking through it, is probably one of the reasons that he deported the people the way they did. Remember the first when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the first deportation, Nebuchadnezzar was taking the cream of the crop. And then later on when Jehoiachin went, some more of those, and apparently allowed them to bring their records and much of the, their goods and things. And so those were alive and well in Babylon all these years. And now when they, they returned, they still had everything they needed to set up the priesthood just like the law of Moses told them to do. That's unlike when in 70 AD when the, when the uh, Romans defeated and destroyed Jerusalem then. My understanding is all the records were destroyed then, you know, one big swoop and it, it was all gone. And Jews today don't know if they're a Levite or not. But back then they still had the records and they could do that. And personally, I think God controlled all of that. It was all right down the line. Last verse in chapter 2, it says, uh, Now the priests and Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So apparently you remember back in 722 B.C., the northern ten tribes were taken into exile by the Assyrians, and then later the Babylonians took over that area. So apparently some of those that were from the tribes of Israel returned as well. Chapter 3. What we're going to see, we've only got about three or four minutes here. What, what I want you to see in chapter 3 is that when they returned, their, their primary objective was to go back and keep the law that they had failed to keep and was the reason why they were in captivity to begin with. You remember Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 30? He says, an appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. 
and my people love it so. And so the priests weren't keeping God's law. They were just doing what they wanted to do. And that was the reason why they were in captivity. Well, now they return. I want you to notice in verse 2, it talks about offering all these burnt offerings. And it says, as it is written in the law of Moses. You go down to verse 4. They celebrate the Feast of Booth as it is written. And they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance. And after there was continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for the, all of the fixed festivals. You see what they're doing? They've learned their lesson. They're going to go back home and they're going to do what God told them to do this time. And when they pray, then and God is going to listen. Of course, we're going to see they're going to stumble a little bit along the way. <laughs> but their intent when they got back, they had learned their lesson about this. But it said in verse 6, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid at this point. Verse 8, now in the second year of their coming, in the second month, there's Zerubbabel and Joshua kind of got things going here. And um, they began, verse 10, now, the, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of God. So now, as I understand this, they've been back two years by now. They settled in, got some houses to live in and so forth. And so they begin to build the temple. There was a lot of joy. Look at verse 12. While many shouted for joy, some of them who had seen the first temple wept and others rejoiced. And they said all of that crying and the rejoicing was all mingled together where you you could hardly tell one from the other. So now it's about 534 B.C. And they've laid the foundation of the temple. Things are looking up. Uh, they were frightened, it said, and back up in verse 3, terrified because of people of the lands that opposed them. But they were putting their trust in God. They laid the foundation of the temple. They've got a good start. And so things are looking good. And that's the end of chapter 3. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, Lord willing, next week. Perhaps... Perhaps there's someone here tonight who has never obeyed the gospel. I want to ask you really kind of a hypothetical question. I was thinking about this this afternoon. What, what do you think it would be like? Wouldn't it be grand if, if you could go back in history and get to sit down and talk and meet with some historical figure that you really like a lot? What if, what if George Washington was able to call you and invite you to come back and sit down and talk. Wouldn't, wouldn't that, wow, that would, that would be something. It would be an honor, wouldn't it, if George Washington invited you to come meet with him? What an honor. You, you couldn't turn down an invitation like that. Maybe Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, invite you to come talk with them. What an honor. 
What about if Noah asked you, invited you to come talk with him? Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Apostle Paul. Can you imagine what an honor that would be for them to call you and invite you to come come and meet with them? You'd, you'd never turn down an invitation like that. Never. What if the Son of God were to invite you, send you an invitation? The one who came to this earth and lived and died, shed his innocent blood, to save your life. What, what if he were to send you an invitation? What if he were to say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest under your souls. My burden, yoke is easy and my burden is light. What if Jesus invited you? What an honor. How would you turn down an invitation like that? Well, that's not a hypothetical invitation, is it? You know that's a real invitation. Jesus is real, and his invitation is real. And it's an honor to receive an invitation like that. How could you turn that down? Never be a better time. There will never be a better place to accept that invitation than right here, right now, tonight. And you ask, well, how, how do I do that? How do I respond to an invitation like that? Well, the Bible tells us if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you repent of your sins, confess your faith before men, be buried with him in baptism, the Scriptures tell us the blood of Christ will take away every sin. And what that will do then is that puts your feet on that spiritual, narrow, straight and narrow path that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. Put your feet on that path that Jesus said that leads to life. And that inheritance we read about, the promise that we read about there in Hebrews chapters 11 and 10 and 11, that's that eternal home to be with Jesus and to be with the Father. You see what the invitation is? Come be with our Lord forever. What an honor. What an honor. How can you turn down an invitation like that? Maybe someone here tonight who is a Christian and sin has crept back into your life. You know that if you repent, God is faithful and just to forgive. So whatever your spiritual need may be tonight, we invite you to come while we sing a song for your encouragement.